You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. All right, so I'm wondering, who are gardeners here today? Do we have any gardeners in the house? Brian, you can raise that hand higher. We know that you can garden. (laughs) Missing Sue today, got a few. I love that. Some confident gardeners. I didn't know that, Mario. Okay, good to know. I know who to get some tomatoes from this spring. So how many of us would say, we wish we were gardeners? More in that category? Me too. Me too. How many just know you're never going to be able to, you don't even try? (laughs) Pastor Jeff is in that category. You're not alone. Okay, well, I'm kind of between the last two categories. This is a picture of my dad's garden. in sunny San Diego, actually Fallbrook, California, if you know where that is. A couple of weeks ago, my family had a great Californian adventure. We got to go to our hometown, San Diego, to see our family. And I just am amazed by this garden that my dad, this is actually my dad's garden. Isn't that gorgeous? Um, I can see kale there, and we get fresh lettuce for our salads when we stay there. I mean, it's February, and look how green and lush San Diego is looking. Isn't it beautiful? Uh, The next picture is actually a picture of my daughter, Charlotte, and then you see my dad right behind her. This is one of our last days we were in California. He's wearing some overalls. You can't quite see it, but he looks like a full-on farmer. He's so cute. So, Dad, if you're listening back in this message, you are such a good gardener, and I love, as a granddad, too, how sweet he is passing that along to my sweet Charlotte. She worked so hard out in the yard um, that day with her granddad, and they do work hard. My dad, if you're a gardener, a true gardener, you know that it's not just good luck. Now, I do think that my dad does strange things, though. He has when he starts to plant his little seeds in these cups, he has this thing in his garage where there's like UV lights that help grow the seedlings. I don't even know what he's doing. And then I think he sings to them. He swears by that. He says that it helps them. And I think there's research that shows that it works too. And those seedlings grow up and boy, we get the best harvest. We were enjoying some tangerines while we were in California The Aldi tangerines that I've had in Germantown since have not even compared. It doesn't even taste like the same fruit. It's absolutely amazing. So um, today we are going to be talking a lot about gardening, but in a different context here as we think about um, the vineyard in our life. So um, I'm going to pray again here. Lord, I thank you for your holy word and for your word for us this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would prepare our hearts and minds to take in this message from the book of Hosea. May your word change and renew us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reading today from Hosea chapters 9, 10 through 11, 11. And I want you to follow along in your pew Bible today because we're covering a lot of ground. It's on page 756. And I think that you'll be able to follow along a lot better that way. So we will see through this prophecy comparison to God's relationship with Israel to a vineyard and its gardener. First, we will look at how the vineyard is spoiled, and then God's call on his people to cultivate the garden, and finally, how the ultimate gardener, with a capital G, O-D, restores the vineyard. We see how this vineyard is spoiled, looking at Hosea chapter 9, starting at verse 10, and then in verse 16, when God says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree, in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor, 
and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. In verse 10, these grapes and figs, these first fruits, remind us of the prosperity and blessing that God gives Israel and the loving relationship between Israel and God, much like the early relationship here with Hosea and his wife Gomer. At first, it's a sweet romance. Israel trusted God for a time, and God was delighted. And then the honeymoon was over. When Israel arrived at Baal Peor, named after a false god, and took part in pagan rituals and sin. What are our modern equivalents of Baal, of worshiping other gods? Might it be worship of ourselves, of money, of sex, indulgence? In worshiping these things, our love of God dwindles. Our worship of him becomes secondary. In verse 16, we see this reference to Ephraim who was one of the younger sons of Joseph and then became one of the tribes of Israel. Ephraim then becomes a term to refer to northern Israel. We see irony that Ephraim means fruitful. We read in verse 16 that Ephraim is not bearing fruit, that Israel's dried up spiritually and overtaken by weeds. So we too are in danger of drying up spiritually. Cornelius Plantinga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, explains sin as this, treating yourself as if you are your own self-cause and treating God, therefore, as an accessory. It's a me-first, God-next kind of attitude. God owes me. I deserve happiness. It's an unwillingness to say, you are God and I am not. The Heidelberg Catechism, published in Germany, has been used as a discipleship resource by the church for over 400 years. It's one of the most accepted Reformed catechisms. Children would learn the questions and answer in their Sunday school classes, and for good reason. It's really rich with truth. The first question is my very favorite one, and asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? Do you know the answer to this one? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Child of God, I want you to hear that, that you are not your own. You belong to God. And while that might seem restricting, it is in fact freeing. If we're not ruled by God, we can be sure that we are ruled by something else. Political systems, cultural influence, or some other enslaving ideology. When I try to take charge of my own life and my own strength, it's honestly a train wreck. But I know that when I am yielding to God and bring before him my life and dilemmas, knowing in fact that I am his, that's a great comfort, and it really is freeing. Moving to chapter 10, we read on. Israel is a luxury and vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built, As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. 
So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. In verse 1, chapter 10, we see that Israel has been deeply blessed by God with prosperity as their vine has yielded blessings. But what does Israel do with these blessings? They build altars to other gods. They build and build, but not for God's kingdom, for themselves. How often do we also build wealth for ourselves and for our own glory, rather than for the glory of God and for his purposes? John Stott, a popular English theologian and evangelical leader, calls this the great scandal of so-called nominal Christianity, explaining how masses of Christians have a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to be a little bit involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects from the hard and pleasantness of life while changing in its place and shape to suit convenience. No wonder cynics complain of hypocrites in the church and discuss religion as escapism. I struggle with this. Do you too? Have you and I become too comfortable? Are we using our God-given gifts and talents, skills, money, and resources for him? Are we hoarding to ourselves all of those things and for our own pleasure? May we repent of that and seek God and ask him what he would have us do with everything that he has given us. God says in verse 2 that their heart is false. God is not satisfied with Israel's half-hearted worship and allegiance. We can't pick ways that we will choose to align with God and ways that we don't. And yet we see this all the time. Charles Spurgeon notes about a divided heart. The soul that endeavors to find two resting places, first in the world and then in the Savior, will never have joy or comfort. A man's own heart will flatter him even about his sins. Our hearts cannot be trusted. And God will have none of this, not from the Israelites and not from us. In verse 8, we continue. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. A mountain cannot hide us from God's wrath. He knows our evil thoughts and deeds. And while God remembers his mercy and wrath, he, his love doesn't discard holy law and the consequences that come with breaking his law. On the cross, when the crowds gathered around, Jesus quotes this part of Hosea, chapter 10, verse 8, as we read in the Gospel of Luke 28:30, They will begin to say to the mountains, cover us into the hills, fall on us. Hear this good news, brothers and sisters, that while a mountain cannot cover our sin, the blood of Christ can. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So how do we turn this around? God is calling us, this next point, for us to cultivate our vineyard, to cultivate our souls. It's time to get to work. Picking up at chapter 10, verses 11 and 13. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself, 
Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. We see a lot of imperative verbs here, commands from God, lots of musts, must plow, must harrow, break up fallow ground, reap steadfast love. There's work intending to be done for our souls to keep this wild vine growing. The Gospel of John in chapter 15 reminds us that Jesus is the vine and God the Father, the vine dresser. May we heed God's word to fertilize the soil of our soul, digging deep, breaking up that hard soil so that seeds of righteousness can grow in us, so that God's love can bear fruit in us and through our lives. Salvation does not come from our works, but the Apostle Paul does instruct us in Philippians 2.12 to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or for those of us who have already started drifting to thoughts of lunch and dessert after lunch, I'll give you another picture here. Picture mixing up a bowl of cookie dough. It's really hard at first, and when you first get the spoon in there and you're stirring it around, it's kind of tough to break it up. It's a lot like gardening that way. What does that practically look like in our day-to-day lives to work out our salvation? It looks like honest confession, like really true, raw prayer, not leaving out the sins that we want to hide or ignore, but digging to the hardest spots in our heart. With the Lord's help and mercy, we can turn from our sin. We can break up this fallow ground that is rocky and filled with weeds. Our human hearts that are filled with self-indulgence need the grace of God to break it up in order to grow the spiritual fruit that only God can cultivate. Are we tuned to hear the voice of God in our life? Do we feel the weight of our sin? Do we turn to him or do we ignore him? The storm clouds of God's wrath are gathering, so the need of God's mercy is strong. The action on the human's part is to seek God. Verse 11 reminds us that when we seek the Lord, we get a sweet reward of righteousness. Not a righteousness that comes from us, but from him. Righteousness requires obedience to God and dependence on him for his grace. That obedience is the sign of his presence and grace at work in us by the Holy Spirit. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains that when God chooses us as his own, he gives us the garden of our souls. He has graciously given us the tools to to cultivate it. But it is work that we are to do. If we don't, God tells us in verse 13 that we plow iniquity. We reap injustice and eat fruit of lies. We can grow fruit of God or fruit of sin, but that fruit will multiply one way or another. Finally, the gardener restores the vineyard. God restores our souls. Chapter 11 through verse 11 shows us God's incredible compassion and love for his people. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. In verse 1, God recounts his covenant love for Israel. And then in verse 2, we see people leaving and turning their back on God like a rebellious teenager. 
This is known as apostasy. This happens every day, just as Jesus tells us it will continue in Matthew 24, 12. We see people who are raised in church walk away in adulthood, convinced that God isn't real. We even see pastors, worship leaders, and famous Christian YouTubers just this past week walking away. And while it hurts to see that, especially when people we love and care about turn their back on their faith, we must remember, too, that the power of the Holy Spirit is still at work, calling people out of darkness, calling skeptics into light. Take C.S. Lewis, the college professor, author and atheist who found God at age 33. And then J. Warner Wallace, a homicide detective who found Christ at age 35 and takes his investigative training to research evidence of faith. Can God be proven? Yes, he can. But I'm deeply concerned that the voices we listen to, the loud voices that are shouting, are the voices of our culture. And that we're not actually digging for actual evidence. If you know someone who is struggling with disbelief, or perhaps if you're honest with yourself, you're struggling with disbelief, I'd encourage you to look at Lee Strobel and his book, The Case for Christ, or books by Josh McDowell. And again, Jay Warner Wallace has great videos on YouTube that you could look up with his work, even N.T. Wright. There are resources for you. May we not be afraid of searching for truth or afraid of the hard questions because God is real. We don't need to be afraid of that. It's Satan who is a liar. Our culture is believing his lies. This reminds me of the book of Daniel, chapter 3, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They choose to stand in a culture when everyone else is bending their knee to a golden statue. May we stand firm in our faith in the same way. Verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. We have this picture of a child who has no concept of how God has cared for him or her. And perhaps I'm not the only person with children who whine that say I don't do enough for them, when in fact I lose sleep trying to keep them alive. They don't have an awareness, right, of all the things that I do as their mama. And so we also take for granted the healing that God has provided for our souls and Jesus Christ. He's been a good, good father to us. Verse 4 says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. We see God's love before the beginning of time when he elected us in Christ, choosing us before we ever chose him and showing that love for us in history by his son taking the punishment of our sin on the cross. Verse 5, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. God bent down and forgave, and yet Israel kept returning to his ways. We do this too. We need this ongoing grace and his mercies every day. We need his wisdom because in our own flesh, our own counsel devours us as we see in that verse. Verse 7, 
My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. When we continually reject God, reject the cross, God has left no choice but to leave us to our own devices. And yet, verse 8 reminds us that God does not give up. His compassion is stirred. We deserve this wrath, and yet his love is enough to keep pursuing us. As God is just, there's a tension. He loves us, but he's holy, and our sin must be punished. And so he provides a way through his son. Verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In Hosea 11.9, when God states that he is not a man, he isn't bent to vengeance, but rather to mercy. It's vastly different than how we behave. If any of us were going to give advice to Hosea, with his continually unfaithful wife. I think many of us might say, Hosea, you are justified to divorce your wife. You don't have to put up with this anymore, right? And yet God gives us this picture by requiring this prophet to stay in this marriage to show God's incredible patience and endurance with our sin and our unfaithfulness. May we not take that for granted. This reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1 that we were, dre- we were dead in the trespasses and sin, followed by what might be my favorite two verses in the Bible in Ephesians 2, 4. It starts with, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved, grace, you have been saved. But God. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 10. They shall go after the Lord, He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. So I have a slide here of a a lion here for us. If I was doing the children's message, you could be sure I would have had them give their best lion roars. In verse 10, this prophecy points to Jesus and his work on the cross that makes a way for you and for me. We see this reference to the lion's roar, This war to the West from God is like a call of a lion to his young, a protection of his cubs to his people. And that head turning West, some speculate that it could be to the Gentiles. God is calling people back to himself, and not just the Israelites, but people all over the world. Thank you, God, for calling us to yourself despite of ourselves. So may these truths from Hosea not just be thoughts that we consider today, but change our hearts today and affect how we live for God tomorrow. As the Bengals sang in the 80s, tomorrow is just another what? Are you listening? Manic Monday. Who are my 80s fans? Come on. Wish it were what? Sunday. Yeah, some of us are going to be feeling that way tomorrow, right? We're going to wish it was Sunday. Today, this Sunday, we are the gathered church, right? We're all here together. It's awesome. But tomorrow, we're going to be the scattered church, each in the context where God has placed us to show his love and mercy. 
How can you bring peace, truth, and grace to the people God has placed in your lives on Monday? How can you allow God to be the gardener of your vine in your workplace, in your classroom, or in your living room? How does belonging to God change how you relate to your coworker, your classmate, your neighbors, or your spouse? And now, as we prepare for the Lord's table and our deacons and elders and Pastor Jeff come up to lead that, may we continue to ponder these things. God's broken body as represented in the bread we eat is what reminds us of God's extravagant love for us and his son paying the ultimate price for our sins. The cup reminds us that his blood covers our sins and has made it possible for us to draw near to our compassionate and holy God. Let's pray. Father, draw us near as we come to your table. Thank you for your patient love and your amazing grace for us. May we not become complacent and selfish with what you have given us, but rather make our lives a living sacrifice and yield to your Holy Spirit to work in us. Thank you, Jesus, for taking God's wrath upon you, paying the penalty for our sin. May we never take this for granted. In Christ's name, amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.